This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Jimmy McKay. Jimmy is the Director of Communications for Fox Rehabilitation and the host of five podcasts in the category of Science and Medicine, PT Pintcast, NPTE Studycast, FoxCast PT, FoxCast OT, and FoxCast SLP. He has a doctoral degree in physical therapy from Marymount University and a degree in journalism and mass communications from St. Bonaventure University. He was a rock radio DJ for 15 years before coming to the physical therapy profession. Most recently, he was the program director and afternoon drive host on the 50,000-watt 97.9X radio station. He has presented at state and national conferences, hosted the Foundation for Physical Therapy Research Fundraising Gala, and was the captain of the victorious team in the Oxford debate at the 2019 Next Conference. Jimmy, welcome to the program. I really appreciate your time today. Steve, thanks for asking. I was flattered. Uh, been listening for a while and watching who's on the show and, you know, always get some insight out of uh, the people you talk with. So glad to be here. Yeah. Now, this is a, a unique situation for you because usually you're on the other end of this microphone. You're asking yeah, the usually. questions and you're uh, you're the podcast leader. So here uh, you're doing, doing something new today. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. This is feeling like I'm, you know, with, with the guests that I usually talk with. This is the part of the show where I'm like, this is going to be great. Just relax and be you. And here I am trying to tell myself, just relax and be me. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Okay, well, we're going to find out. I think. Now, you uh, physical therapy is a second career for you. So uh, you started mm-hmm. out as a, as a rock DJ. So. Uh, uh, you know, when I think about that, uh, well, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Why physical therapy? Sure. It seems like kind of a stretch, to be honest with you, from rock DJ to physical therapist. So um, how yeah. that, how'd that work? Yeah, so a 15-year career as a, as a rock radio DJ and program director, which is, you know, similar in physical therapy to like a clinic director. So, you know, in charge of kind of the other members of the air staff and making sure things get done and promotions and everything, kind of coordinating everything. And when I first made the choice to make the change to go back to school and, uh, and pursue physical therapy, I didn't see any parallels. Just like a lot of people would say, that seems like a complete right-hand turn. doesn't seem like anything would, would kind of carry over. And the, the more I've been in the profession of physical therapy, the more I actually see a lot of similarities in terms of goals. Um, assessment, figuring out where someone is and where someone wants to be, and then charting a course to get from that A to that B location. Um, But for me, really, what it was, all I wanted to do from, man, I did the morning announcements in sixth grade, and all I wanted to do is kind of just talk to people and uh, figured out you could make a career out of that as a broadcaster, went to school, got a degree in journalism, mass communication, had some really great internship experiences in uh, in New York City with some really, really big radio stations and big names and some really small radio stations 
in uh, like my hometown of the Hudson Valley, New York. And I learned a lot from both of those things at the big stations, you know, got a chance to, to see what, what the business of communications was on a, such a large scale and what went into that behind the scenes. Um, had an opportunity to do my final internship with uh, 92.3 WXRK in New York City, notably the last, uh, the last location that Howard Stern was on terrestrial radio before he made the jump to satellite. So learned a lot on the big stage, but also a ton at some smaller radio stations where because it's small, a smaller operation, you get to do more. Um, so yeah, so the radio stations that were smaller probably didn't have the name appeal, but I probably learned as much, if not more from, from interning there. So from there, I uh, got my first job in radio. I don't want to brag or anything, but working midnight to 6 AM on Friday and Saturdays. Yeah. Uh, was pretty much my buddies, you know, either driving out to or coming home from the bars that were listening, but it was on the radio station that I listened to growing up, you know, age 12, I think, um, was when I first actually heard the station when they signed on. So it was like the first radio station that I listened to like Nirvana and, you know, the Foo Fighters. It was, it was kind of when the, uh, the grunge era was really like kind of starting to explode and, and uh, it really kind of captured me and says, oh, these are, the, these are a couple of things I love. I love talking to people and interacting with people. And I love this, like this new form of music. So uh, got a chance to, to be on the air at the station that I grew up listening to with some of the DJs that I grew up listening to. So for me, on my first couple of days, it was me walking around with my mouth agape and just saying like, hi, I'm Jimmy. I've been listening to you since, you know, since I was 12 and um, had an opportunity to... Um, to work there for a number of years and, until I made a jump, you know, in radio and, and a lot of communications things, it's, it's all about kind of market size and you always want to progress in your career. So uh, I got a chance to run a radio station in Northeast Pennsylvania and kind of be the guy in charge of, of everything uh, on top of getting a chance to have my own show in, uh, for afternoon drive each and every day. So I got to a chance to do a little bit of the, the management and um, logistics side. And I also got a chance to take the button down shirt and the tie off and, you know, throw a Guns N' Roses t-shirt on and jump in the studio and just be a rock radio DJ for a couple hours a day. And that was it. I mean, my mind, I was done. I had my dream job. I was doing what I wanted to do um, and uh, had a lot of fun doing it with the people that I got a chance to either interact with or the people I got to work alongside until and this is, this is kind of a similarity that I've found when people make a, a career change to a different industry, there was just this moment of saying, like, I just kind of started to feel a little bit out of love. You know, I didn't hate the industry I was in. I didn't hate radio anymore. I just felt like I was putting in the same, if not more, effort to get less and less out of it. And they started to make me nervous. I got really scared because I'd worked my whole life to this point. And this is what I really like. This is my identity. When I met people, you know, at weddings or anywhere away from work, and like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a rock radio DJ. That was just, that's what I led with. That's who I was. And I lucked out um, because I was doing a little bit of self-reflection, whether I'd admit it or not. Um, I was training for my first Ironman triathlon. And one of the, uh, the guys who kind of led the local cycling group, everybody would go to him and kind of say, Hey, you know, my knee hurts or my leg hurts or my shoulder, you know, what do I do? And, um, this particular guy, you know, after rides, we'd always be, ha we all be having a beer and he'd say, well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you that. And it was just how he communicated with these people. 
And I could actually see their posture change as he was asking them a couple simple questions. And I need to give him a couple suggestions and say, why don't you try this? Come back next week. Let me know. And it was just like watching that interaction that happened. I was like, wow, you like people walk away from the interactions with you. And it looks like they're, you know, they're, they're better off for it. They feel better. And, you know, how, however they, they take that information, what they do, that sounds amazing. What do you do? And he said, I'm a physical therapist. And I said, I want to be one of those. And he said, nah, you don't want to be one of these. It's too, you have to go to school for a bunch of years and you're, you're rock ready. You just stay there. So I kind of was like, okay, well, he, he probably knows better. And then I realized he was just kind of fight clubbing me. If you remember that movie with, uh, with Brad Pitt um, and Ed Norton, he, uh, I went back to him after a few weeks. I was like, you know what? I still really think this is interesting. I'd like to pursue it. And he did it again. He's like, nah, nah, it's too long. It's money. You know, it's going to be really expensive. And on the third time, that's when he said, all right, you've asked me three times, go up to the community college and uh, I'll, I'll get you set up at an anatomy and physiology one. Just take one class, jump into it. And if you don't like that one, trust me, you're not going to like physical therapy at all. And two, three weeks into the class, he said, how's it going? And I said, I learned how a muscle contracts, like all the things that have to happen to make one muscle contract. And it happens every time. And it's amazing. And he said, all right, you're in the right spot. So that's how, that's how I went from, from rock radio over to, to physical therapy, got into PT school and, uh, and loved being around those people. So now, that's how I made that weird right turn. Yeah, that is a weird right turn. But as a DJ, I mean, you must love music and, and are you a yep. player? Are you uh Oh, let me, let me clarify that. Not a player. As in, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about guitar playing or maybe saxophone playing or something like right. that. Do you, uh, do you partake in that as well? Or you just love music for what it is? I love music for what it was. I, I, uh, I didn't have a musical um, bone in my body in terms of being able to play. Um, but it's interesting you ask that. Uh, there were a bunch of people who were musically inclined in radio. But I figured out, or I just kind of looked around, uh, why people um, got into radio in terms of broadcasting. And one of them definitely was... Um, is there a love of music? I mean, I can think of my former morning guy, morning radio DJ that I worked with for a number of years, and he loved music, hearing it, playing it, finding new music, talking about it. Um, I liked it a lot, but it definitely wasn't my number one. So the music, the love of music is definitely one reason you could go into to radio. Number two, number two is fame. There were some people who just wanted to be the next Howard Stern or the next, you know, insert your local radio DJ here. And a lot of times those people, they'd flame out real quick because um, you're not really going to get really famous being in radio, but it can feel like it. Um, and then the third really was interacting with people. And if that one wasn't number one or number two on your list, you really didn't have a very long career. So for me, it probably went interacting with people with music right behind it. Um, because the whole illusion of fame coming my way uh, was was thankfully taken out of that equation. Um, but if you could mix those things and you were on the right station, like for me, rock re rock music was the stuff I listened to when I went home, so it wasn't a stretch. But there were, there were more than a few broadcasters who, you know, for example, worked for a country station um, and loved interacting with people and talking, but they didn't necessarily love country music, and they typically didn't have the longest career so as if you could if you could find that format of music um and get on that station then y you really had a good opportunity to have a great career now as a but yeah no no musical ability whatsoever in my, in my body okay now as a dj though I, I would imagine that you have some interaction with some of the uh 
uh, yep. some of the stars. And, and I, I know that you uh, I heard a story in the past that you did an interview with the Foo Fighters. Uh, so why don't you give us a, a few uh, people that you met and talked with and what was that like? Was that like, yeah, you know, just a... Uh, meeting the superstar and being all uh, oh that's so cool or or, or did they maybe yeah. disappoint you in some ways yeah i don't i can't tell you that i've had too many disappointing um interactions to be honest if if i were to tell you about the disappointing interactions they'd probably be from bands you'd be like i've never heard of them um but the really established ones like you mentioned the foo fighters um dave matthews and ozzy osbourne were probably the three of the bigger ones where even after being in radio for 10, 12 years, when I find out I'm talking to those guys, even I was a little bit like, Ooh, man, I really got to make sure this goes well because these are the people I look up to and I don't want this to go sideways. But, um, you mentioned the Foo Fighters. That was definitely my top three. I uh, had an opportunity to, to get set up with a, an interview with, with Dave Grohl and what it was supposed to be. They were doing a show in Northeast Pennsylvania, and there was a couple competing radio stations in the area. So they, each of us got to send one DJ, and we were going to get to interview one band member. And we weren't going to be told who it was until the day before. So I might have been talking to Chris Shiflett or Taylor Hawkins or Dave Grohl. And obviously, I love the band, so I would have been thrilled talking to any of them. But if you're going to interview the band, I don't know. For me, it was like, let's go for Dave Grohl. So I lucked out, and that's who I got to interview. But that actually just made me a little more nervous because now it's like, well, now you got what you wanted. Now you got to do something with it. So I'm sitting in a room backstage, and I don't know. The, room, the interview was supposed to be like at 1 o'clock the day of the show. And uh, 1.30 rolls around and 2 o'clock, and this is just making it worse. You know, I'm just getting more and more nervous. And uh, finally he pops in the room, and uh, I said, hey, uh, you know, Mr. Grohl, and I shake, shake his hand. Uh, you know, I'm Jim McKay. I'm, I'm from this radio station. I'm here to, to do your interview. Do you mind if I record this? And he, he like, like all the color gets drained from his face. He looks at me so serious. And he said, I don't do interviews. And I, my, my, my entire, my mouth goes dry and I'm like, but I, 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 I thought this was set up. And then he just, and then all of a sudden, if you've ever seen Dave Grohl on stage doing his thing, that look of just this big, huge smile comes across his face and he just leans and he goes, I have conversations. And that's when I was like, okay, this is already going to go well because he's in charge. Right. I just realized that he's in charge. But also, he's like, this is going to be a conversation. So I was like, okay, I really can't mess this up. you know. So that was a great interaction. Um, and, and for me, watching someone be really, really good at something that likely he's done 10,000 times. And I was in Northeast Pennsylvania, you know, it wasn't the biggest market. I wasn't in the biggest station in the world, but he treated it um, really, really warmly and went out of his way. He probably didn't have to do that. He talked for so long that the other two interviews, as I mentioned, there was other radio stations interviewing Chris Shiflett and Taylor Hawkins. Um, their interviews had ended, and now they're just walking around looking for their buddy. They come into my, to the room that I'm in, and now my interview is getting, you know, I'm using air quotes here, is getting interrupted, and I'm just like, I'm like, this is great. The whole band showed up. This is fantastic. And they were just as, as gracious and forthcoming, and, and it just showed me, like, these guys, they could have just said, we're Foo Fighters. We ain't do it. We don't have to do this, especially because we're in Northeast Pennsylvania. Where are we? And they did. They went out of their way. So That's that was so definitely... That was definitely a top moment. The second one was Ozzy Osbourne, as I mentioned. That one was on the phone. And Ozzy, I don't think he does it anymore, but he had a festival going on for, man, 15 years called OzFest that he threw his name on. 
and it would travel around and kind of feature some up-and-coming rock acts and some established acts. And we were lucky enough to have, have OzFest in Northeast Pennsylvania a few times. And to promote that, they'd get Sharon or Ozzy or both of them on the phone a few weeks before um, the, the, the show to kind of pump it up, right? The last kind of push for ticket sales. So again, I find out I'm, I'm interviewing Ozzy Osbourne via phone 48 hours before it happens. And now I'm turning to everybody in the radio station. I'm like, man, what, am I, what the heck am I going to ask Ozzy Osbourne that he hasn't been asked 50 times before? You know, tell me something about Iron Man or, you know, what, what's the deal with that bat story? Is that legit? Like, no, I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain. So I do now, uh, or I did that, whatever it does now, which is I, I just Googled. And I started looking around at something that I just thought would pop out. And something did. Now, it was called Top of the Pops. Essentially, it was the British version of American Bandstand. I mean, we've all seen, I mean, some of us seen American Bandstand with Dick Clark. Yeah, and it yeah. broke new artists. Top of the Pops was essentially the, the, the American Bandstand across the pond. And they broke new artists. And I'd never heard of it at that point because it was early in Ozzy's career, you know, much younger than, than, than I was in terms of listening and following Ozzy. But what happened was the day I Googled it, 48 hours before I was supposed to talk to Ozzy, they had announced that Top of the Pops was actually going off the air. It was still on the air at that point, but they were saying, hey, this is the last season. We're taking it off the air. So I filed that away, and I go, okay, I'll ask him something about that. And then I'm racking my brain, racking my brain. And I came up with like a list of like six questions total. I decided to lead with, uh, with Top of the Pops and, and, uh, and made it a really open-ended question. So he gets on the phone, and I'm super nervous, even though he's not even in the room. And I, I think the question went like, Ozzy, you, you credited Top of the Pops with being a springboard for your career. You said without it, you probably wouldn't have had the, the musical career that you did. How does it make you feel knowing that Top of the Pops is now going off the air after X amount of years? And dead silence, to the point where I thought we lost connection. <laughs> and then I can hear he literally like kind of like exhaled and he turned to someone in the room, like his manager or whatever in the room. And he goes, is it true? Like top of the pops is going off the air. And I said, this, uh, this is the report I'm getting. And then it clicks in my head. He doesn't know. Yeah. So I just gave him information and now I'm getting a real true, honest reaction about something that means something to, to Ozzy Osbourne. He's never been asked this question. Clearly he didn't know it's happening right now. Um, and then we just had a discussion for, I think, again, we were set up for like a 30-minute phoner. And an hour later, he's telling stories and recounting who he saw in that show and why it was so important to him and what it was like, you know, being a, a, a young artist and walking onto and what it meant. Um, never got to the other five questions. Totally glad about that because they were clearly not as good. And that, that lesson there taught me um, – no matter who you're talking to, whether it's Ozzy Osbourne or you know the people that you interview on this show, like they're they're people first and foremost. And if you can get someone talking honestly and truly about something that really means something to them, as an interviewer, remember to get out of the way. And it's it, you know it is about that that human story that they're sharing. But you can really get some great content that everybody can learn from and about if you can find the right things to ask in the right way. And I completely lucked out on that just by Googling Ozzy Osbourne. I forget who 
combo of words was that I found that. But man, if that if that wasn't a stroke of you know luck or happenstance. Um, and the last one, probably my, in my top three, is Dave Matthews, uh, a big uh, artist in, in my life in terms of just loving him and his band and everything those, those guys kind of put out. Um, had a chance to, to go backstage and meet him and was allowed to bring one person, only one. And I was dating a girl at the time, and, uh, but I chose my cousin, Kara, who she and I had gone to maybe 15 or 20 Dave Matthews shows, which did not fly well with the current girlfriend. But I was thinking uh, <laughs> she's going to be my cousin for the rest of my life, and I'm not really sure about this one. But um, Dave, again, you know, terribly gracious. Um, it was in a tent with about 25 or 30 other people, and the deal was like, okay, so here's how it's going to go. Dave's going to come in. He's going to come out and talk with each of you for five, ten minutes. And then if you have something you want signed – He'll come make another lap around the room if you have a picture or a CD or something. So he comes over to us first. We just happen to be standing in the right spot. He comes over and asking questions. Like, he's Dave Matthews. Like, I'm sure he's used to people, hey, thanks so much. Let me tell you what you mean to me. And he literally says, how's it going? And, uh, you know, where are you guys from? And my cousin, looking at him with starry eyes, told uh, him all about her and we're cousins and this, that, and everything. Talks for 10, 15 minutes. Super nice guy. We watch him make the lap of the room, and now he's going to do the second lap where he comes over and, you know, if you have anything to sign. And my cousin's got like a, had a poster and a CD. And now he just talked to 30 other people, and I'm sure he's done this several times that day. And I'm sure he talks to hundreds of new people who are, are fans or know who he is every single day when you're on tour. And he had just talked to 30 people in like 30 minutes. And the first thing he did when he made his second lap, he goes, Kara, what part of Long Island did you say you were from again? And I was like, how did he possibly remember that after just having, you know, 10 more conversations? And that thing really left me with he is probably where he was, number one, because he's a great musician. But the other aspect of it was he paid attention to people and, you know, and 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 showed that by asking a, a, a thoughtful question, you know, for, for him, it was a follow-up question, but she melted as soon as she remembered my name. <laughs> oh my God, what am I going to do? And, you know, remember where I was from, but he's like, which part did you, you know, say you're from? And, you know, that, that was the, the things that, um, that, that Dave had left and, and all through those three stories had left where it really was the simple stuff. These yeah. guys were good at. Now, yes, they're also really great at some other stuff that, that some of us aspire to be really, really good at. But if it's the difference maker, some people forget to be good at the simple stuff when they're really, really good at the hard stuff. And these guys didn't. And so I don't know what percentage of their careers um, can be attributed to that, but that's what they, that, that's what those three stories left with me. Well, and I think if you look back on it too, like with Dave Grohl, I mean, you know, he's this amazing drummer for Nirvana. Then, yeah. you know, when Kurt Cobain dies, so the band obviously breaks up, and now he puts together the Foo Fighters and is the lead man for that, playing a different instrument and doing all the yeah. singing and writing. I mean, it's a pretty amazing story. And so you just wonder, is a guy like that, does he just have that much more talent than other people? Or is it because yeah. he works so much harder than others? Or he just sees an opportunity and knows how to grab it? Um, it's really interesting stuff. And since this is a... a podcast about leadership it always intrigues me when i see people like that like what what what's what's the special sauce that makes him different right he he actually talks that he had an interview with taylor hawkins who plays drums and i i guess i didn't really think about this um but imagine playing drums in foo fighters 
with Dave Grohl standing six feet away who played drums for Nirvana. So it's like, man, not only is the guy who's leading your new, you know, this band that you're now in, um, he, he played your position <laughs> in that band that you probably listened to while you were growing up. And, uh, and, and whoever was doing the interview said like, does he, does he like kind of comment or does he give you pointers? He goes, no, it's just like, he's a lead singer doing lead singer things and saying, Hey, can you do whatever? He's never saying, do it like this, which Dave said, Oh, I, he literally in that moment was like, Oh yeah, I guess I don't, I don't do that. I guess I could give you like drummer pointers, but he's thinking he's, he's in that mindset. He said, I'm over here. I'm guitar and lyrics. He's like, that's you. You got this. I wouldn't have put you in that behind that drum kit unless I wanted to hear you play drums. Not, I don't want to hear you play drums. Like I would play drums. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's just, you know, building a good team and having the right members yeah. in the team and then trusting them to do their jobs. So what do you think the future of live music is going to be? Uh, we're, we're sitting here, uh, you know, having this interview during COVID-19 where uh, of all the things, that's the one where I'm like, oh my gosh, is yeah. it, what's going to happen? These It's, it's got to be killing, especially some of these lower mid-level performers yep. that uh, that's what they count on. It's just got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I had tickets to uh, to see Dave Matthews, as I mentioned, this summer. was super pumped to do it, try to do it in a different location every couple of years, and I was going to see some new country artists. I'm not a huge country fan, but I've been kind of getting into it just because of because of live shows. I had friends say, listen, I'll pay for your ticket. You come to the show. I know you don't know any of their songs, um, and I know you don't, you know, quote, love country. Uh, and then I left, and I was like, that was just a, a big, giant, loud party. Like, I want to go back. Um, and I think that's also what Dave Grohl, um, like, like, um, really hammers on where he says, listen, you're never going to get rich just selling albums. And he's like, you're never going to sell albums unless you play live shows. He's like, you should, the, the, the albums should drive people to want to come see you. And he's like, that's where you build a tribe. And Dave Matthews band for a long time since the early nineties has been doing the same thing, but they didn't even necessarily invent it. It was the, it was really like a good model in a lot of business schools, which is the grateful dead. They to their, to their, you know, credit or discredit didn't really have any radio hits. So you'd say, well, man, they're just messing the formula up. You got to get a radio hit then you sell some albums and you get them out to your, to your shows. They did it the other way which is what people talk about now in terms of digital marketing or building a physical therapy practice. They went to building a huge fan base based on, yeah, come out to our shows. If you enjoy it, by all means, uh, you know, bring a tape recorder and hit record. They actually let people, they were the kind of one of the, the bands who said, this is what made us a big deal was, um, fans trading different live shows and Dave Matthews, uh, band. It was the first time I'd ever heard of this. They go out of their way to set up specific areas in concert venues for people to bring in like DAT recorders, like digital audio tape recorders or MP3 players or really high quality stuff. And people just, you'll meet them in the parking lot at these shows and they just, they, they're trading in terms of like, oh yeah, I saw a great show in Connecticut here. Let's, or I'll email you the link to this. Now, now you don't even need to, to, to trade physical things. You can share a Dropbox link. So what's going to happen, man, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I will say to dodge me having to give a specific answer. It's the people that will pay attention to the human connections that will still be able to, when this is all finally over, you know, turn the key and, and have people want to show up. You know, I mean, I saw Dave Matthews the first month or two of, of COVID and, 
you know, the, the large lockdown slowdown doing, you know, concerts from his living room. And you see a lot of people doing, doing that. You're not going to make any money doing that. So why is Dave Matthews doing that? Well, number one, he's probably itching to play. He was scheduled to play. And he realizes the power of that connection where, yeah, I will stop what I'm doing to watch Dave jam in his basement for, for a half hour. And he attaches and smartly attaches himself to some great charities where, again, you know, I got no problem with, hey, he's done an hour's worth of time. Here's 10 bucks, whatever you think is worthy uh, of that. So um, I, I really do hope that we can safely return to live music because there is something to be said for watching a show. Um in a group of people who are all experiencing the same thing and in the same way and listen to a lot of live albums myself just to, to kind of get a taste of it. But there's nothing like being there. One of Dave's biggest ones, he did a, he did a, the, the central park show. He did a show in central park in like early two thousands and everything, all the proceeds went to, uh, to the New York city public schools. And I got a chance to be there for that. So now listening to that album, of course, is, is a little more for me because I was like, I'm in there somewhere. I remember that kind of yeah. because I had a few drinks in the park a lot. But, you know, you're like, I, I remember that. So that connection to me means a lot. Um, yeah, there's and nothing so I'm, like, I'm hoping that comes back. Nothing like live music. I mean, when that when you're out in the audience and that bass drum goes right through your heart, yeah. it's like, oh, man, that's just that's great. You know, speaking of uh, past uh, concerts, uh I had never in all my years seen the Rolling Stones. I thought, okay, well, you know, I got to see the Stones at least once, you know, and, and say I did. And, and the warm-up band or the first band was the Dave Matthews Band. And one of the funniest things I've ever seen was, you know, the, the drummer for the Dave Matthews Band. It's like he's climbing into a capsule with, you know, drums mm -hmm. and everything all around, and he's just playing all these things. It's crazy. So they, they break that down and then bring out uh, Charlie Watts' uh, little drum set with the you know, like three little drums and a couple cymbals. And it was just hilarious to see the difference in styles, um, you know, yep. from the different generations, but both uh, amazing in their own right and both fun to watch. But that was, that was really interesting. Yeah, so, definitely, definitely miss it. Now that'll probably be a sign. I think that things are getting, you know, I don't know when it'll be, but I know we're trying to make a run at sports, but what's the big element we're missing in sports right now is the people in the stands. So once we can do that safely and, and appropriately, yeah, that's, that's a, that, that'll be a big sign that we've figured this thing out. Yeah, for sure. So let's switch gears a little bit here. Now we all know yeah. that uh, with PT Pintcast that, I mean, you've, um, you've just interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of PTs and, and what's what surprised you the most about all those interviews? What what have uh, what are PTs about, and what what when you talk to them, um, what do you think uh, is just wow? That's just surprising in a way. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was about thirty or forty episodes in, and again, like I launched this podcast just honestly because I was curious about things. Launched it as a second year student. So I don't even know how much I didn't know at that point. I mean, I was just literally wanted to talk to and interact with people who um, I wanted to know more about. It was about 30 or 40 episodes in. So a few months in and someone had asked me, I had lucked out on some of the early interviews that Sharon done at like episode seven or eight. For some reason, Sharon said yes to me. And I was like, great, this will be awesome. And the person said to me, was a classmate of mine, what are you going to do when you're done interviewing all the famous people in PT? And he was, he was kind of saying it kind of like a dig, like, all right, see, yeah, you, you have a few hits, but like the reason the Sharon Dunn interview was great is because it's Sharon Dunn I and mean, she's not going to miss, you know, but when you've done a lap of 
you know, the famous PTs and I'm using air quotes here. Uh, what are you going to do that? Like what, what, what are you going to pull out of your bag? Where's the, where's the draw? And it literally him asking me that question, which was kind of a dig. I literally heard my answer in my head and I became, I actually got really calm. I was like, Oh, what you don't understand is that me interviewing people for years, rock stars or just people who are, you know, caller 10 to win concert tickets. I was like, you can learn something from pretty much anybody if you're willing to take the time to pay attention to them and listen and ask them the right questions and get them going um, on the things that they're passionate about. So the thing that, um, that I was most surprised with is that other people were interested because for a while there I was, you know, if you don't hear it different than live radio, there's no, I don't have a, you know, a phone line in the studio with a flashing light letting me know when people are calling. Um, but it really is that I'd go to a conference or two after the show had some, some pretty good success and people were like, Hey, I know, I know you, you're the, you're that guy with the, with the podcast. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, do you, how did you find it? Why do you listen? And um, the nicest things they could say to me would be, well, you're asking um, the things I want to know about. So like, it's great. And I guess the thing that would like hurt me the most or, or, you know, drive me the craziest would be like someone screaming at their speaker or thinking like, why doesn't he ask this? It's the obvious question. Why doesn't he, why, why aren't you going in that direction? They open the door. Why didn't you go through it? Um, so the things that surprised me was the profession's really, really curious and as curious as, as I was. Cause again, like I came up with this idea, like, you know, as a PT student, kind of just sitting in my, in my apartment, um, and I was just so shocked that other people would be as interested in finding out about all the different areas that uh, I wanted to be to be curious and poke around in. So that was the fun part was because in an interview, right, Steve and I are talking right now, but the most important part of this interview is people listening to it right yeah, now and absolutely. what they take from it. And so that's once you respect that, as, as long as the audience is always in mind, um, things pretty much things typically turn out well. Yeah, you know, I remember the first time I saw you at one of the conferences, and it was late at night in a bar, and, you know, uh, you were interviewing somebody with this mic, and it was so loud I couldn't even hear my own self think or talk to the person next to me. And all I could think about was, what's that dude doing? There's no way anyone can hear that. That's a, and then you had those fancy mics that, you know, I guess yep. only uh, grabbed, you know, a little bit in front of you. But, uh, yeah, that was, um, that, that's, I mean, your success has been amazing. It's, it's, it's fun to see. Thank you. It's and, and I and I say this before, uh, you know, on shows is I, I want to have fun and learn something on every episode. I've done more than I don't know seven, eight hundred of them just with this, and I haven't. I can honestly say, and you can hear it in my voice. Just pick any episode. I can. I have not. I haven't missed yet. And the cool part is, the the giant payoff is from what people say too. Like I, I I learned something too, and these are kind of fun and they're different. So keep going. And to me, that's the biggest win. That's probably the second biggest win that uh, that you can do when you when or you can receive when you're um, when you're interviewing people. Yeah, so you know it's interesting when you think about it. So you uh, uh, went back to all that school and and got your uh, got your <laughs> prerequisites to get into PT school. You go to PT school. I know you came out and you you worked in pediatrics for a little while, but mm -hmm. now you're kind of back to doing what you're doing before, but maybe just with a I different know. audience. So does that I kind know. of do you, do you kind of feel like you? Um, you're missing out on some of that. What, what, what are you thinking about? That? Yeah. Cause I think All it's right. interesting. So, uh, right. So go to, you, you work for 15 years, you become radio DJ, you make a right turn. You're going to go be a PT. And then a few years in, you know, three years of PT school, two years out, 
I make a hard right turn again. So now if you keep track of my right turns, I'm just a right turn or two away from being right back to where I started from, I guess. Um, yeah. So I had the podcast going while I was in pediatrics and treating. So I'd treat all day and then I'd come home and do interviews. And I was averaging, even through PT school, two interviews a week. And when you know anything about editing and producing and even just arranging, like that was still a lot. And I really did believe in this weird intersection where I live now, which is, and I used to say that PTs are great at what we are great at, which is PT, uh, being you know physical therapists and helping people achieve things. And I still believe that. And I used to say that PTs were just bad at communicating. And, I, and I've changed my tune on that. I don't think we're bad at it. I think it's not the first thing that comes to mind to do. I think we're very altruistic, so we give away a lot of information. Or we don't necessarily value the information that we have and why it would be great to share that or how to, or even how to communicate that. And so I, I saw these things, these two, these two things crossing this intersection, and I said, I want to do that full time. So, yeah, so my job now is hosting my podcast still, and that's the thing I do at night for fun over a drink or two. But um, my day job is hosting three other podcasts for a large geriatric physical therapy practice, Fox Rehabilitation. I help them create videos, um, whether I'm in front of the camera or behind. I, I like you know, kind of both sides of the camera with that, which is helping other people, um, you know, get on camera or get on mic. And then I help people write as well. So I'm actually still using those degrees I paid for. It's just in a really different way. So that journalism communications degree and the PT degree, a lot of times I'm in a meeting with Fox where sometimes I'm the only person who's actually a licensed physical therapist. And I'm able to say I'm with a bunch of people who are maybe marketing or business or logistics, a bunch of other people who are important to the running of a practice. But I'm able to say, hey, from a communications perspective, totally agree with everything you're saying. As a physical therapist, I get what you're trying to do, but not like that. Let's just change it a little bit. And I save us a ton of time um, on production because that could have just that could just about to come out. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, a PT would never do that or a PT would never say it like that. Um, and it can also, it makes sure that people know, like, this is, we're, we're, this is what we mean. It's not disingenuous. Like, um, I mean, we've all seen stock photos of like PTs in the polo shirts and the khaki pants doing something that they'd never do. It's because those are two, you know, models or whatever that just got called in for the day. And they said, you know, do PT stuff. And they <laughs> mimicked PT stuff, you know? So for, for what I get to do is I get to go, okay, I see why you want to take a picture like that, but PT would never do it like that. And any, any PT, a real PT who sees that everything you do after that is they're just going to go, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't trust it because if you flub the picture, it shows that you didn't have the effort, right? Like kind of Dave Matthews story. He cared. He remembered my cousin's name at 45 minutes later because he cared about just, you know, making sure she, she was heard and, and seen and understood. Um, so, yeah, so for a while there when I was about to make the jump, so I'm still I'm in pediatrics still, two years out of PT school, and I'm like, I think I want to go for a 100% non-clinical role, but I had this guilt, like, but I just got a degree, and other PTs are going to look at me and be like, you're not real because you're not treating every day, or what are you doing, and why'd you do this, and what, what was the point? Um but every morning I woke up, I still loved it, and I still thought there was an opportunity for me to literally do the big picture thing, which is help people, because if I can use my skills from as a communicator and with a physical therapist knowledge to get information to people who might not have got it in a certain way or um, you know, show physical therapists how to, how to take their knowledge 
um, and how to change their delivery device just a little bit. And now that reaches more people to even the, the, the micro. Um, I've worked with physical therapists on interviewing skills. I and mean, here's one of those things I talked about at the top of the show, like parallels between physical therapy and radio is when we learned subjective exam in PT school, I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I get this. Like, why do you ask this before that? And I was actually like kind of helping out my instructor who was like, oh, yeah, no, that is a better question to ask first. I was like, oh, yeah, don't go right for the throat. You got to make sure they're comfortable first. Um, so I've actually helped people on such a small micro level in terms of how do you how do you learn subjective exam from a radio DJ? Or why do you ask that question um, first? Or how do you ask that question? Um, and you can go evidence-based with, in terms of like motivational interviewing techniques. When I started looking into that in PT school, I was like, oh yeah, I know all this stuff, but they were putting words to the things that I learned from people in radio studios. And now there's with motivational interviewing, even better, there's evidence behind it. So, um, I, you just bring up an interesting point. I think that, uh, we as a profession need to get better. I've had a lot of new professionals tell me uh and just be really honest and say you know it, it's not quite what i thought it was going to be I, I went to pt school uh you know i i love the profession i love the people treating patients isn't exactly my thing uh so, but i want to stay within the profession but do something to support it in ways whether it's administratively or uh innovatively or, or whatever and right. a lot of PTs judge them for that, like there's something yeah. wrong with them for that. And I think uh, we need to get over that because we need people in those areas to, to help our profession as a whole. And it doesn't have to be treating patients. It can be doing other things that support those that treat patients and make it a better thing in, in the long run. So I, th- I think we just yeah. need to, to be more open to that. And, and it's interesting that you said you felt you got judged as well. And I don't even know if I was getting judged as much as I thought I was getting judged. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. it, that, that's my, that's me getting in my own way. Oh, they're all, they're all going to laugh at you or they're going to talk behind your back. To be honest, like I, ne- I don't think I ever took one person actually saying it, but this is, that was my, you know, being self-conscious about it. So no one ever actually said it to me. So I was like being my own worst critic. I mean, there yeah. were more than a few people who were in my corner going, go for it. I mean, Literally, like my 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 former professor uh, Sky Donovan literally said, "What's your go for it? If it doesn't work, what's your backup plan? Being a PT, that's a pretty good backup plan." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, good point. I can go. It's like permission to fail, you know. Which sometimes we need that little safety net. Like, yeah, go, give it a shot. If you love it, great. If you don't, we'll make another right turn. We'll figure it out." Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do PTs need to learn from the world of communications to reach a, a broader audience, do you think? Yeah, um, dating, right? So uh, I use this dating analogy a lot. So if, you know, going back to my college days, once, once, <laughs> once you fail a million times, you have to pay attention to why. So we like to lead with the things that we're good at. So that's similar to a guy walking up to a young lady at a bar, and if the first three things he says to her are about him, he's probably not going to get a phone number or another, you know, another look from her, no eye contact, and and no uh, no conversation. So, a lot of times, I think we're so excited, or I don't know where it comes from. I feel like it's excitement and wanting to help that we like to lead and insert. Instead of, I think the really, really good therapists um, know how to wait for the right moment to get into a conversation and the right way, which typically should be a question or it should just tell me, you know, not even 
like a very a very smart question can be the smallest question like you know what is what do you mean by that or tell me more um and it gets the other person talking because that again with you know with the Dave Grohl or the Ozzy Osbournes or the Dave Matthews like it shows that you're interested Absolutely. and it, it you know I wish it was hey take my you know $200 course because I can show you the 10 things that you can do um, it really is about a human connection. And we, I mean, as a profession, we like to say, hey, you know, you spend eight minutes with your, your, your GP and, you know, a lot of times we're the healthcare professional you spend the most time with. That is awesome. Let's not change that. What are we doing with that time? You know, if, if we know we're going to be working with or there's an opportunity to be working with someone for a long time, man, use those first couple interactions to really build that bond. You talk yeah. about therapeutic alliance. How are you building that? Yeah. How are you formulating that? If you know, it's questions, you got a chance. As a leadership coach, I always tell you know that the people I'm coaching is that um, you know that one of the best tools is questions, and then yeah. also if you're in a situation and you don't know where to go or you don't know what the next step is, just ask questions. And if you ask enough questions, at some point the light comes on. And say, oh, okay, here's yep. where we need to go. This is what we need to do. And yeah. so questions are very powerful and. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think you make a great point, and I think that is, a, is an excellent approach. Yeah, I, I learned that early. There was a band called, uh, it was a band named Stained, and they were like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, some hits. Aaron Lewis was their singer, great voice. And it was one of the first interviews I did, and it went horribly because I went in there with 25 questions written down, and I just tried to plow through them. Yeah. Right, and that's a lesson that I teach people. And Aaron was a professional and answered everyone as thoughtfully as he could, but how are you going to answer 25 thoughtful questions in, you know, a, a half hour interview slot? You can't. And it was somebody back at the radio station when I was trying to edit. I was like, I don't know how to edit this. It's just a bunch of like, I asked a question and he like said a few sentences. Then I asked again, they said, well, did he screw up or did you ask too many closed questions? And I was like, but I had a half hour and they were that they were literally motivationally interviewing me through you messed this up, but I'm not going to say you messed this up. I'm going to show you, I'm going to walk you to see how, why you messed this up. And I took a lot away from that Aaron Lewis interview, which probably came out dreadful on the air, but it taught me a lot because I didn't know how to do an interview just because you know how to turn the microphone on doesn't mean you know how to do an interview. And I got handed a big old slice of humble pie with that one, but that one never, that, that lesson never left, thankfully, because that person afterwards back at the radio station, when I was trying to cut it up, was like, why do you think this doesn't sound like a conversation? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think it is a conversation. And then like, silence. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't a conversation. So who wants to listen to that? That's right. Well, good lesson for sure. So, and somewhat yeah. related, what does the PT profession not have but needs to grow and prosper? That needs to grow and prosper in the future. What do we not have? What do we? What do we miss? Oh man, you're going deep on that. What do we not have? that we need to grow and prosper in the future. Um, man, I think it, it I mean, I went to PT school in 2013, graduated in 16. And I remember through those three years of PT school, a lot of people were saying, you know, new grads um, don't have what it takes to start a private practice or even seasoned professionals, it's not for everybody to be an entrepreneur. And now as we stand here, um, you know, in 2020, I think that that is drastically shift, shifted in terms of mindset. Like, hey, if you're willing to, to hustle and you're willing to give someone something of value, you can charge for that. So I think that's something that's coming. I think, you know, embracing that. Um, 
So I, I think it's it's a business mindset in terms of of agility, and I think we have that because like I'm I'm say, I'm say, I'm looking at my PT license right now. It's on the desk. That's my license. I can literally do anything within my scope of practice because I'm holding that piece of paper in the state. And I think a lot of times we want to, and, and there's something to be said for safety in terms of working for an established organization. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but there are other people that need us, and the way to get to them is in agility. I mean, look where we are now in terms of telehealth. That was something that, you know, even the last CSM this past February, which seems like a thousand years ago, but it was just a couple months ago, um, even that, I was standing at Technopalooza from the tech SIG. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's it's down the road a few years. It's not quite here yet. We need, we need touch. And we proved necessities of other intervention. We're figuring out how to actually deliver that, um, in a way that's meaningful and we're seeing pretty good results. So I'd say, you know, continue with, this is something we have, but we need to continue with, give people permission to be agile in their practice and, and, you know, promote that, let people, let people do that. Yeah. You know, it's a really interesting concept because I think if you look at a lot of business, and you say, oh, let's let's consider physical therapy a business. A lot of businesses do consolidate, and sure. the physical therapy profession itself is not very consolidated. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's all these big companies and these big organizations. But if you really look at it, it's only about fifteen percent uh, consolidated. Is that uh, right? When yeah. You look at it, so. Uh, I do think it's an area where it, it, you do have the ability and, and, and even people embrace that innovation and trying some things on your own and doing some unique things. So, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're into that and you're a PT, there is opportunity out there. You just have to find it and, and uh, you know, figure out uh, through communications like we've been talking about all day today, how do yep. you get your message out there and how do you get people interested? Yep. And it's a lot of times it's the other way. It's not, Hey, how many, how do I buy, you know, TV ads or radio ads? And this is coming from a guy who paid my rent on other people buying radio ads. And that's fine. That's, I always say, talk like your audience listens and listen like your audience talks. You should probably you know, first listen like your audience talks, talk like your audience listens in that order. Um, and if you do that, and if your audience is telling you, yeah, in people in this area, we just, we don't listen to, um, you know, that the radio stations around here. And you go buy a bunch of ads, like you, you haven't paid attention to what they said. You heard them, you didn't listen to them. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, that's definitely important. And figure out what you're good at. I got a buddy of mine starting a, a new clinic, and he's been working with four other organizations for years. Great PT. I send my family and friends to him. And he's taking a really good self-assessment of like, who is my ideal patient? What, who do I want to get out of bed and treat? And who am I really good at? Who can really benefit for what I do? And he's being very, very um, narrow in that scope. And 10, 15 years ago, that, you know, that was, hey, you need to be broad. You need to be, you have to, a uh, very wide funnel to make sure um, that you'll survive. And I think people have seen that funnel flip, which is be precise, you know, aim small, miss small yeah. in terms of what you love to do. And because what you love to do, you're going to do really well and you're going to do for a long time. Well, and I'm a huge believer. I think that sometimes people go into, let's say, private practice for the wrong reasons. I mean, you have to right. be very clear on your intent. And if it's to be your own boss or work whatever hours you want or just make money, I mean, I think those are the wrong reasons. It's, it's like what yeah. your friend just said. You know, if there's something in the community that's missing and you think you can fill that void and you think Bingo. you can do something better than anybody else, those are the people that are going to be successful. So. Yep. Yeah. Start starting a business because because uh, you want to sleep in and and take off on the weekends. 
go talk to anybody who started a business and ask them, you know, I mean, what's the average, an extra 15, 20 hours a week on top of 40. So you're looking at 50, 60 hours a week if they're going to start the business. And if something goes sideways, like, oh, I don't know, a pandemic, yeah. um, you don't have a board to turn to. It's it's you. So advantages, if that's your if that's your um, that's your skill set, I would say go for it. Yeah, you know, uh, this pandemic thing is crazy. I just talked to uh, two CEOs that in February they were given the CEO positions of their companies in physical oh, therapy. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's hard enough to learn how to be a good CEO, let alone uh, right. thrown into the fire during a pandemic. So, oh, my gosh, it's, been, it's been crazy for sure. So you've uh, interviewed tons of people and just, you know, have a real pulse on what's going on. What are... What are uh, PTs in this nation most interested in? What are your biggest uh, uh, points where people listen the most and seem to get the most excited? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, clinically, so we'll go clinically and non-clinically. Clinically, it is all these different niche areas that weren't, maybe weren't niche areas three, four, five years ago. I mean, I'm talking to someone soon who does marching band health. And again, like we mentioned before, I know nothing, I'm not musically inclined, um, but they're marching athletes. So I was reading this guy's stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm like, the, the physical demands on these people carrying these instruments and doing all these things, um, that they there should be a PT for that. Uh, call, talk to a woman uh, uh, physical therapist, Kate McGee, who is an e-sports physical therapist. She does a, She's already been doing a lot of her treatment via telehealth just because of the geography of where her players are. But she started talking about the financials in terms of the multi-million or billion dollar prize money for one tournament and that's a billion with a b um they're built they were building stadiums for people to go watch other people play video games and then you you just try to wrap your head around um where physical therapy can go follow where the people move i mean look how people are moving esports i mean i used to get yelled at you know i was playing video games too much and playing <laughs> in, in nintendo or the no friendo as my dad would call it um, get outside and, and, you know, play some, play some games. But if people are enjoying something um, that in, involves movement, even if it's the small muscles and bones in our body, like esports, uh, it's important for them in their lives and their identity to be able to do that. And that's where PT can insert themselves in terms of non-clinical information, um, finance, um, uh, you know, stuff out of our scope of practice or a little bit out of our scope of practice or knowledge base would be nutrition, personal finances and business. So when we bring on someone like, like yourself and we start talking business or leadership, we see, I see a spike in those downloads because I think those are areas that PTs would go, Oh yeah, I don't know anything about, you know, uh, finances or what am I supposed to do? We did an episode recently about, okay, COVID your student loans, their interest is at zero. What should you do? And we had this finance guy who specializes in physical therapy, uh, physical therapist, student loans, and finance talk about that. So it really, I mean, the, the common theme between all the things that the profession and the pulse is going in, it's, uh, it's, it's the small areas and aim small, miss small. So yeah. it wouldn't necessarily on paper be, make much sense for me to talk about finances. Um, but we're physical therapists like everybody else. We have finances and ours are going to be a little bit different than a nurse or somebody else in healthcare. So when we see those things pop up, people, people really do gravitate towards those kind of weird niche episodes. So it's again, like a podcast seems like a broadcast, but it's actually a narrow cast. Once I heard that term, I was like, Oh, I giving me, gives me the uh, permission to aim at a very small target. 
but you've got hundreds of thousands of PTs out there, if a, a, a percentage of them find it interesting, that that will resonate with them and that builds the relationship. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jimmy, you know, uh, I usually ask a common question uh, uh, during my interviews, and this is a, a podcast on leadership. So in relation to leadership, what is your pearl of wisdom that you can leave with us today? Um, this one came from, or comes from my dad. So my dad's not in healthcare at all. My dad was a New York city firefighter for a little over 25 years. And he really, he said he had a lesson early in his firefighting career in the Bronx. That was, um, after a big firefighter, they call it after a good job, a real hot job. They'd all meet back at the firehouse. Everybody go shower up and meet back in the kitchen right away. The captain wanted to meet right away. My dad was just sitting there as a pro B rookie firefighter and they went around the room and they said, okay, what, what'd you see? And let's walk this thing through like play by play. It was kind of like a video breakdown, but no video, obviously in a fire. And they were going around the room and my dad was kind of just sitting there next to the captain was going to be the last to go. And they, all right, McKay, what do you got? And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm a pro B. Like this is the first time I've done anything like that. And the, Captain used it as a teaching moment, which was, we've all been doing this for years. This is your first, your first job, but uh, we've been doing this for years. But nothing, nothing says that you can't bring a new perspective or a new idea to what just happened. And their stakes were pretty high in terms of, well, if we learn something from you here today, because let's say you've been not a firefighter for the last 10 years of your life and you bring something in that improves how we do something by 1%, um, that could be the difference between life or death for someone a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. So it really was, Hey, no matter how new you are or how green you are, or, you know, your, your weird experience, whatever the radio DJ to PT or whatever your connection or thing you can bring to a situation. Um, it's still important. Don't, don't devalue your knowledge and your experience. Um, because it could be the difference maker going forward. So that was a good lesson that I learned from my dad, which was pay attention, learn by all means. My dad wasn't coming in there and saying, well, here's what I know. Cause I'm my first, my first real big fire. Um, but it doesn't mean that what you know is invaluable. And, uh, remember that. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Simon Sinek, uh, sent this out recently about, he thinks that the people that would be successful on the other side of this pandemic that we're in is that. Uh, someone who can imagine the job that they have now being different in the other side of this. So realizing that, okay, this is the way my job used to be, but what's my job going to be like on the other side of this? So if we can agree that maybe that's true, uh, how do you see your job being different on the other side of this pandemic than it was before? Well, I got really nervous. So, you know, mention what my, my day job is with Fox. I got really nervous because like, I, you know, in the first couple of weeks when things started really locked down, I was like, I don't, we might, we might start to furlough people or, you know, I'm the, I'm the communications guy. I'm probably the first one to go because again, devaluing my experience and my um, uh, education, what am I going to bring to this table? And then I realized, well, Hey, since everybody's now flipping to remote, how we communicate is actually more important than it was even just a couple of months ago. Um, so personally for me, it's, I'm trying to focus on educating other people to be better communicators versus short-term just doing communications. For example, every time we're out there shooting a video, I try to see who's, who I can bring with me, even if it's on a virtual meeting and just say, 
do you see what we did here? Do you see, do you see why, why I might've done it like this versus that? Because down the line, I'd like to create an army of communicators within Fox at the same time within the profession of physical therapy. When you see PTs out there like yourself hosting podcasts, YouTube channels, social media outlets, and taking our knowledge and talking like our audience listens, listens because we've listened like our audience talks. Um, that's who I think is going to be really, really valuable. I've got some new grad PTs that uh, work with us with the show. They've already got a six-month crash course internship on communications. When they go to get their very first job in PT, they can with confidence say, well, I can see a few different ways we can communicate that message to bring patients into this clinic in this community. And that is valuable. So I think the people, for me anyway, I'm trying to create more communicators because I think the product we sell, the thing we deliver as physical therapists is it's, it's worth it. It is very, very valuable. Um, getting, getting the right patients in your doors, getting the right people to listen to you. Um, if that's one little thing I can help with, uh, that's a success to me. Well, Jimmy, you just nailed it. I, I've always said, people say, what's your most important job as a leader? And I usually come back with is growing more leaders. And so right. your, your job to, to grow more communicators. Awesome. Awesome answer. So Jimmy, uh, this has been a real pleasure as always. Uh, yeah. appreciate, uh, having this discussion with you and, uh, and interacting with you. So, uh, thanks for being on the show and, uh, Wish you the best of luck and continue to listen to your PT Pinecast and all the other things you do. So thanks so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Uh, flattered. Thanks so much for, for having me on. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.